1: You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 41, A Discovery of Witches. Well, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to February. A Discovery of Witches is our topic today. Uh, I'm Mike, and I'm here with Dave, of course. And Dave, I guess this show is not really our normal fare. It kind of has romance at its core. And it's really not even on a major or even second-tier network in the U.S. It's a kind of unusual fare for us in that sense.
0: Well, well, it is. Now, we did have uh, that one period where we did Sabrina, and, and uh, I guess that was around Halloween. But, yeah, like you said, it's not on a major network, although we wonder whether it's going to end up on Sundance's regular channel. Although, I guess you could argue even Sundance isn't a regular <laughs> yeah. channel. But, but yeah, it's, you have to pay – I think it's 4.99 a month to get it. But I see I guess I differ that yeah, there's romance there, but there's a lot of mystery and intrigue that's really grabbed me at this point.
1: No, oh, and once you get vampires and witches and things like that, you know, there's so much out there now that plays around with that. Even you know, with Twilight being at the head of it in terms of being on the screen, but then you know, even True Blood played around a little bit with the different creatures idea. But for those of you who are not familiar with this, it's a British show that aired on Sky One in the UK, and now it's on Shudder and Sundance Now. I guess they're owned by the same outfit or something. But since it's not something that everyone can get a hold of, although I kind of gave people some backdoor ways to get to it through our Facebook group, we're not going to really spoil the major elements of the story. We're just going to talk about it as a concept because it pretty much holds its concept throughout The season of eight episodes, but it does actually hold to the same premise such that we can actually talk about it fairly easily, uh, just focusing on characters and the creature dynamics without spoiling too much.
0: Yeah, I think as long as we don't give away any major plot points or major plot developments, character deaths, things of that nature, we're in good shape.
1: Right. So if you haven't seen it yet, you can decide now whether you want to listen to this for the teaser aspect of it and see if our discussion kind of persuades you to check it out or you can check back after you've seen it your choice
0: (laughs) but right now you mentioned you've seen the entire season i've only seen the first two episodes and that's not because i didn't enjoy it i really did i just haven't had a chance to get to it but i definitely plan on watching the rest of it
1: all right so you tell me if i spoil too much as we go that's okay (laughs) But it's an adaptation, like most of the stuff we've been talking about these days. Everyone wants to adapt an existing intellectual property. And this one's based on the All Souls trilogy of novels by first-time fiction writer Deborah Harkness. And A Discovery of Witches was her debut novel in 2011. I believe she was a nonfiction writer, a history writer, kind of like her main character in this one, Diana Bishop. So this show follows the first novel, and the second book was called shadow of night came out in 2012. And then the book of life, the third one in the series came out in 2014 and four years later, kind of a whirlwind. It became a series on the UK sky one network. And it aired here in the States on the channels we mentioned as of January 17th, 2019. So this is uh, something that's been around for a while. So some of you been, may have been able to check it out, but it tells the story of a Yale historian named Diana Bishop played by Teresa Palmer, who is studying alchemy at Oxford's Bodleian library when she discovers a long lost volume called Ashmal 782, a magical book that is thought to contain information about the origin of magical creatures, depending on who you ask, basically, specifically the witches, the vampires and the demons who are the three creatures that, inhabit the world that this story takes place in
0: right now what you haven't mentioned and maybe you're going to is that nobody is able to access this book yeah until diana tries
1: yeah and she didn't even try she was just doing her regular mundane human research and it just showed up for her when she asked the research librarian to pull it for her so yeah. Very interesting concept. She didn't even do it on purpose, whereas many people had been looking for it for years. And I thought it was interesting that Harkness herself, the author, had a similar experience in her own research at the Bodleian, having called up a book of spells long thought to be lost in her own research into the occult, because she did look into that in her own studies. So definitely based a little bit on her own experience, which is really kind of cool. <laughs> So what are we saying here? Harkness is a witch. <laughs> well, I mean, interest seems to be enough for Diana. So why not Deborah as well? <laughs> All right. That's a yes. Then. All right. Proceed. <laughs> Diana, of course, is a witch, but she's rejected that aspect of her life and studies alchemy only from an academic perspective. But this book basically is very interesting, and I love how they depict it in the show. She opens it up, and it's what's called a palimpsest which is old words written under new kind of they scraped the parchment dry and wrote over top of it just to save materials back in the day. But here it almost looks like the words are embedded in the old paper such that it is alive and it kind of creeps off the page into her shows up on her skin for a little while. And and you get the sense that the book has imbued her with special powers, maybe even beyond what she discovers throughout the series. She already has and just doesn't know it.
0: Now, do you feel like it's a trope, the main character walking away from powers that she has? I mean, we've certainly seen this before because I didn't feel like it was.
1: Well, I think what made it different was that she did it willingly, whereas a lot of ones that follow that trope that you're thinking of is like the chosen one aspect where they're just a nobody and then they're called up and this hidden power is found within them. But she actually turned away from the knowledge to begin with. So I think that's what makes it a little bit different in that sense. So I don't know if you agree with me on that. No, I
0: I do actually. And of course I'm thinking of Vanessa Helsing and Van
1: Helsing, but yeah, that kind uh, of thing. So this book inscribes a scar on Diana's palm and it looks kind of like an Omega symbol, but then the book is sent back into obscurity. She didn't realize what it was all about, but kind of was frightened by the experience. And now she has no intent of bringing that book back out again. Once she realizes that, She has the attention of a whole host of creatures, and she's aware that vampires and demons and witches exist. She just doesn't seek their company. And uh, one person who happens to be at Oxford already is a biochemistry professor and vampire (laughs) named Matthew Claremont, played wonderfully by Matthew Good of Downton Abbey fame. And he's a vampire that was sired in 537 AD, we find out through the course of the season. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful character. And these two have great chemistry from the very start. But I think the MVP award probably has to go to Matthew Good uh, overall. Just a wonderful vampire, better than even some of the classics we've seen on television and in movies over the years.
0: Yeah, well, I would definitely agree. As I told you, I love Matthew Good. And unlike your brother, who was not not too (laughs) fond of uh, Teresa Palmer, (laughs) Teresa Palmer,
1: uh, I I thought she was really good as well. No, I think her emotions came across very well. I think what he's referring to is the fact that because Teresa Palmer is an Australian actor, sometimes the American accent comes across a little forced, but such as it is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, as I mentioned, the creatures are what really is at the heart of this story. And that's what I really want to focus on. The fact that this has a world in which witches, vampires, and demons exist side by side with humans. Their numbers seem to be dwindling and they're distrustful of each other. And they're hiding among humans. In fact, there's this voiceover at the beginning of each episode that talks about how humans have taken over this world and they've had to hide in the shadows. And the only way they interact with each other even is by sending representatives to this congregation with a capital C where they uh, have three representatives from each race that meet in this magically hidden Island near Venice. And I really love how that Island was depicted each time they approached it. It just kind of shimmered and appeared, but only if you knew what you were looking for, right? (laughs) Oh yeah. Kind of a cool effect, but the vampires on the congregation are represented by a Claremont cousin named Baldwin and two others who seem to be quite jealous of Claremont power, Matthew Claremont in particular, they have some kind of grudge against him, but vampires in this incarnation, they have no trouble coming out into the sunshine, uh, but they do have super speed and agility and heightened senses. And of course, longevity as well. They live pretty much forever. They're not invulnerable, but they do live for a long time.
0: Right. And that's a great scene that he has with Diana early in the season when she's trying to figure out how old he is and she throws a number out there. and He's like, "Mm, no, older He keeps going back. It it was pretty funny.
1: Yeah. People that he's met with. And I think he had like a book inscribed by Charles Darwin at one point. So, oh, yeah, I knew the guy. But uh, the interesting thing that comes up very early with the vampires and sort of shows up in the other two races as well. Is the fact that the power is dwindling for these magical creatures. And the first incarnation of that is that uh, one of Matthew's uh, sired vampires named Marcus, his son, he sometimes refers him to him as tries to save a friend of his who got hit by a car and make him into a vampire sort of to cure him. <laughs> and it doesn't work. It doesn't hold. And so they realize that vampires are having trouble siring. Witches are losing their power. And I'm not sure exactly what's happening to the demons, but they're also uh, dwindling in number perhaps, but that's something that's at the core of the story as well. And then the witches on the congregation are led by a man named Peter Knox, played by Owen Teal, who people may know as Alistair Thorne on Game of Thrones. He thinks that Ashmel 782 shows how witches created the vampires and thus Can also show them how to unmake them, which is an interesting concept that might be based in prejudice on his part, but that's what he thinks the book is able to tell them. And that's why he is fervently hoping to find it, too. Matthew is looking for the book for a completely different reason, and that is to find out the origins of the species in general. That's why he mentioned Darwin, in fact, because of the fact that they're having trouble siring and he wants to find out why and he thinks that book can maybe tell him what's going on
0: right and i find that fascinating that he's looking for a scientific explanation rather than some sort of supernatural explanation the way we might ordinarily see in a show like this
1: yeah and that's why in the past few decades he's been a biochemistry professor because he's had this this singular mission but i really like one of the new witches on the congregation whose name is satu i think she's like a scandinavian witch quite powerful we see right from the start she like sends someone into the earth one of her enemies just gets swallowed up in a ring of fire and a really cool, witch. and she is shown to be quite powerful throughout the series. I'll not spoil some of the things that she can do because it's quite cool to discover them as, as the series goes along. But Satu is definitely one to watch out for. And then the demons, these are the creatures that are the most mysterious to me. And I don't know if they plan on developing this in a future season or if they just couldn't really depict whatever, nature they took on in the books effectively enough in the TV series. But what we do know is that the demons are led by Agatha, one of the few groups that is led by not only a woman, but a woman of color at that. So they seem to be a little bit more liberal in that sense, but they don't seem to have much power at all. I didn't ever see them exhibiting any kind of strength or anything supernatural really about them. But her son implies that they're not even allowed to assemble with others of their own kind, much less the covenant that we find out that prohibits them from intermarrying between species. But these are not like horns and, and forked tongues and tails kind of demons. These are just regular folks that happen to have this attribute. Right. And you, know, <laughs> you
0: mentioned about the uh, stick to your own condom. Got now a West Side Story running through my head.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's very much based in prejudice of a thousand years ago, I think is when the covenant was actually written, which told them that they couldn't interrelate with between species. But obviously there's something rooted in deep seated hatred between the races, perhaps for th- reasons that we are not even made privy to in this series. But the one thing I really liked from the demon kind is that Matthew has a friend who maintains one of his estates and he has this great line while he and Matthew are playing chess and it's becoming evident that Matthew is not only craving Diana, but also beginning to have feelings for her as well and sort of is blinded to the rest of the mission, specifically getting Ashmal 782. And while they're playing chess, Matthew loses to his demon friend. And so the line that he says is, There's more to the game than protecting your queen. And I think thematically that speaks very well to what Matthew ends up doing throughout a discovery of witches, and that is protecting Diana. But before we get into our discussion of Matthew and his queen, Diana, let's go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk more about the relationship between those two. So speaking of Diana and Matthew, that's really at the core of everything. So we want to talk a little bit about how their relationship starts to blossom because he starts by making a soft approach to Diana, just being friendly because he's trying to figure out how she got Ashmole 782, a book that he's been searching for for years without even using any magic. And so he doesn't really do the hard sell. He just pepper serves with questions every now and then. But in the process, he finds out that she's completely undisciplined has magic inside of her, but doesn't seem to really even be aware that it's part of her. And he becomes protective of her against others as the library starts to fill with curious creature patrons who just want to be nearby in case she calls it up again. And you get the sense that at first he's being protective because he wants the book before them, but after a while, it's like, no, leave Diana alone. She's an innocent and she's a nice lady. And I'm starting to like her a little bit.
0: <laughs> right. And that is, again, uh, when I say a funny scene, it, it clearly it, it's not laugh out loud funny. <laughs> but but it certainly is humorous when you see that scene where the library is literally filled with people. And, of course, we're led into the fact that they are demons. And vampires, as you said, interested in the, in the volume.
1: Right. I think that's a really cool way of depicting it just very subtly. But once he starts to realize that he's kind of craving Diana and that he's not really going to be able to stop himself if she gives him the opportunity, because I think part of that comes from her initial attraction to him. And he actually has to chase down a stag to sate his hunger up in the wilds of Scotland or somewhere. I'm not even sure where, but it kind of depicts the fact that he's going to have some trouble if he's going to fall in love with her and it can be very dangerous for her and uh, others around Diana start to tell her that from the very start. Now, nothing ever really comes of that, but I thought that was a great way to set the stage for the fact that from that point on their chemistry is really about the strongest I've ever seen on screen. And I don't even care about shipping and and that kind of thing. So it really was fiery uh, from the very start. And although it sometimes does descend into the male protector trope where he says things like Diana, you stay here. It's too dangerous. I'll go, you know that. Right. (laughs)
0: Although you could argue that he understands that she's ill prepared. Yeah for what he knows she's going to have to face.
1: Right. She doesn't have the powers that she would need. Whereas he has the vampiric powers that could protect them both. But and 1500 years of experience, (laughs) that's right. So, yeah, I, I think it was really well done. The, the romantic aspect of it. I don't find it intrusive at all. And it fits with the story. And that's when I like relationships like this. The best is when they serve the story, of course, but, they have to overcome this prejudice that exists. You can't have vampires and witches together. And there's this covenant that I mentioned, which Diana, by the way, knows nothing about. And apparently that's quite unusual that a witch wouldn't have been told about the covenant from the very start. And even Diana's aunts back in America, don't really trust Matthew at first. I mean, I think it does take a little while and they are persuaded that Matthew can be trusted, but it takes quite some time. And in fact, I th- I felt like the ants, one of which is played by Alex Kingston of Dr. Who fame and Valerie Pettiford plays the other one. She's from uh, the blacklist. You know, they were kind of in the background for gosh, more than the first half of the season before they were put to use. All we ever saw of them was when Diana would call them on the phone and say, I'm with Matthew and you can't do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I felt like they were underutilized for a good chunk of the season. Thankfully, I can tell you without spoilers that they do become much more integral right at the very end. And thank goodness, because he, it's Alex Kingston. You don't waste Alex Kingston. <laughs> but all the interaction that they have does actually kind of hatch a theory in my mind. And that is that this covenant against interspecies relations might be what led to the decline in power. Now I've not read the books, but I'm thinking maybe if you stop intermarrying these magical species, then the power starts to dwindle for each of the species. It's only through combining the species that you get an increase in power or a continuing of these magical races. But again, just a theory that I have. (laughs) But another favorite element that I have is when Diana is able to display her raw magical power. It's quite impressive. It kind of reminds me of another Matthew, actually, from Downton Abbey, Dan Stevens. You remember his character, Matthew? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Dan Stevens is in Legion playing David Haller. And his powers in Legion seem to me to be very similar to Diana Bishop's powers in this show in the way they're displayed with just... Slow motion and like power pouring out of her, especially when we see the witch wind blowing people out of the library, I believe, uh, who are trying to bother her at one point. So really cool display of power. There's a witch water that shows up one time when Matthew leaves her and they're they're having troubles in in their relationship. That's really cool. The, The rain starts to go up into the sky rather than down from the sky. So was the book. Of life, which is also what the Ashmal 782 is known as attracted to Diana because of that raw power that's inside her. That's what I'm thinking. But a big secret is revealed later in the season about how and why she is so powerful without knowing it. And I think it's worth checking out the entire season specifically for that reveal uh, of why is this power hidden within her and why did she know nothing about it? So really cool. Way to frame a story that we're very familiar with this chosen one thing that we were talking about earlier and and I have to applaud the series for holding that close to the vest until the very end of the season and who knows where it will go if there's a season two I I guess the second book of the series (laughs) yeah which I know nothing about so uh, looking forward to that because I do think it's going to get a season two it's been popular enough for sure but other notable characters I want to mention before we wrap this discussion up. I really liked the vampire Gerbert, who sires a beautiful vampire named Juliet with the sole purpose of seducing and ruining Matthew. And in fact, Juliet hunts Matthews as a result. Did you see the scene where Juliet is hunting this tourist named Mathieu? In Italy at all, Dave, did you catch that one? No, I haven't gotten that far yet. (laughs) Yeah, so that was kind of a cool little uh, character. Uh, Gerbert and Juliet both had their interesting details. In fact, Gerbert has a very gruesome secret in a box that helps him figure out important aspects of the prophecy, but I can't tell you what that is. But it is a very key element that is a part of the vampire's secret. And Satu, the Scandinavian witch, also involves herself with that box And it reveals her power to be even greater than we at first see in the beginning of the season. So I'm curious to know why Satu is so powerful when everyone else has their power dwindling, but she does actually try to figure out what makes Diana tick and nearly loses all of her powers doing so. So I I feel like the confrontation between them is a really cool aspect of the first season. And then Agatha, the leader of the demons has a daughter-in-law who has a small statuette that she knows she has to deliver to a specific witch, but she doesn't know who. And of course we learned it's Diana, but this daughter-in-law of Agatha's also has something very special about her parentage and the child that she and her demon husband, Agatha's son are soon to give birth to. So that's, that's a really cool side story that goes on. And then finally, part of Diana's reluctance to embrace the witchcraft seems to have something to do with the death of her parents. This is kind of a Harry (laughs) Potter-esque aspect of it, because that's another chosen one example, uh, like the one we mentioned earlier. So their brutal murder has something very special to do with what's going on with Diana as well. So I really enjoyed A Discovery of Witches for not only the main story reasons, but also those little side stories that went along the way. I know at least Michael Keller on our Facebook group, one of our listeners, was not hugely a fan of the vampire, the brooding vampire trope, but I urge you to get beyond that, because I think if you get a few episodes in, you'll realize that a discovery of witches kind of turns a few of those expectations on their head.
0: Yeah, and Matthew Good is so great, and I just think, as you said, that give him a chance. He is one of those actors, because we've talked about this before, sometimes it takes an episode or two for the actor to really get comfortable with the role. I I don't see that here. He seems entirely on point right from the start.
1: Oh, yeah. When he's looking feral as a vampire, you believe it. (laughs) He sells it. So, yeah, worth the price of admission alone, Matthew Good. So what do we got next on tap? We got uh, a a lot of great topics here in February. Uh, What's coming up next in our lineup?
0: All right, Mike. So next we've got an interview with Felicia Day, and she's going to be talking to us about her newest project, Voyage to the Stars, which is a sci-fi comedy podcast. But as the interview will reveal, it's much more than that.
1: Yeah. well, you're, People are going to start thinking we only interview people who are doing a podcast with Trisha Helfer and now Felicia Day. But actually, you know, we also take the opportunity to talk to them about their other projects. And, of course, Felicia Day, geez, she has all the Joss Whedon uh <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer stuff to talk about. We've got The Guild. We've got Dr. Horrible. There's all kinds of things that we were able to sneak in in, into our interview in addition to talking about our podcast. But also, it seems like she's going to be doing a lot more than just the podcast. There's going to be a comic related to it, a game related to it some merch associated with it. So it's going to be a fun interview to share with our listeners next Monday. Actually, this one is going to be an exception to the rule of our Sunday release just because of a coverage embargo that they have on this podcast. They don't want anything coming out until the 11th. The podcast comes out on the 12th. So our interview with Felicia Day about this project will be coming out on the 11th rather than the 10th. So you'll, get some notice in your social media that this podcast will be a day later than usual, but hopefully that won't be too jarring for anyone, but that's going to be it for this episode of sci-fi fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of geek on Twitter and Facebook at den of geek us, and we are at sci-fi fidelity.
0: And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast, wherever you access it and be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media, or, or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at
1: gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.